0: Well, why don't we stand up and read the text? I'm sure you'll recognize at least some of it. If you've read the Gospel of Luke, yeah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, In the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To console those who mourn in Zion. To give them beauty for ashes. The oil of joy for mourning. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. That they may be called trees of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. And they shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations. And they shall repair the ruined cities. The desolations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the foreigner shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But you shall be named the priests of the Lord. They shall call you the servants of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, you shall have double honor, and instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land they shall possess double. Everlasting joy shall be theirs." For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offering. I will direct their work in truth and will make with them an everlasting covenant. Their descendants shall be known among the Gentiles and their offspring among the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are the posterity whom the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation." He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bride decks himself with ornaments, as a bridegroom, sorry, decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, of course, we thank you of what all of the implications of this chapter are. And um, Lord, we thank that, we're thankful that you, you speak of things to come. And Lord, in the overall picture, so many of those things have already come to pass. And because you've spoken all of it, all of it will come to pass. It's just a matter of time. And uh, so Lord, encourage us, teach us from this. And Lord, help us to look forward to what you've promised in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. Did you guys have the barbecue rabbit? That was good. I don't think she should have marked it. I mean, what is, I mean, why do we think it's ethically responsible to tell people, we're not in the old covenant, so we can eat whatever we want, right? Yeah. And, thanks, what's that? (laughs) It wasn't that good. (laughs) No, if it hadn't been marked, you would have thought that it was just pulled pork, really. It was good. Thanks, Roger. No, it was super yummy. Yeah. So I've eaten a lot of exotic foods, partially because I'm married to Shandy. But I've had barking deer from China. Um, I've eaten cougar. I've eaten cooey, which is guinea pig, uh, when I was in Peru, because it's it's like an ancient delicacy there. Did you have it, Isaac? No. I know Gabe ate a whole guinea pig. Where's Gabe? He was here. Huh? Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, I wasn't too impressed. So, what's the weirdest thing you've eaten? Ostrich? Who's, who's eaten possum? You've eaten possum? Yeah, my grandpa said that uh, during the Great Depression that possum was, because he was from Arkansas, he said possum was not good. Uh, so, but he loved the catfish, so they'd always go try to uh, catch enough catfish that they wouldn't have to turn to possum. What's that? Oh, iguana. Yeah. I've eaten rattlesnake shish kebab, yeah. I've eaten a lot of alligator. And that's pretty good stuff. Chicken. Anyway, let's uh, let's get into our text. Enough about exotic foods. Yeah, but food is a pretty good discussion, and it's a biblical one. So, all right. Well, let's <clears throat> let's look back at the, the text. Verse one. Uh, how many guys memorize this? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now, if you slow down first and try to uh, not identify who uh, the person is the, that it's talking about or who's actually speaking, on the front end of the verse, there's actually three persons, if you, if you notice there. There's the Spirit of the Lord, there's the Lord God, and then there's me, the person, not me, but in the text me, uh, the person talking who the Spirit of the Lord God is upon, whom whom he is anointed. So three persons there. Uh, Two are super easy to identify, especially with with hindsight. Um, So the question, of course, is who is me? Uh, We'll come to that, and most of you already know. Uh, But the Spirit of the Lord has come upon him, uh, this person, in order to anoint him uh, for divine purposes. Uh, The word anoint actually comes from the same Hebrew root that is uh, for Messiah, okay? Messiah, which means anointed one, okay? So this person, uh, by the Holy Spirit coming upon them, they are the anointed one. He is at least a Messiah, at least a Messiah. Uh, In the Old Testament, we know that God had anointed three different offices. Three different offices were appointed and ordained, anointed by God. That's prophets, priests, and kings, right? Okay. So the question is, is this person a prophet? Are they a priest or are they a king? The person in the text, uh, actually looking through one through three, they're, they're being anointed to preach good tidings. Now, who were the, those who proclaimed? What office proclaimed things? Yeah, primarily prophets, right? He's to heal the brokenhearted. Now, most of the people that did physical healing, those were prophets, okay? They were to proclaim liberty, open prison doors. Who is it really that opens prison doors? Kings, kings, okay? Um, Proclaim the year of the Lord, so more proclamation. Proclaim God's vengeance. Oh, that definitely was what the prophets did. To comfort and console those who mourn, to give beauty for ashes, to give the oil of joy, uh, that probably speaking more priestly, uh, to give the garment of praise. He's been anointed for some some duty. It's quite a lot there, yeah. This person, uh, by the description of his ministry, uh, fulfills at least two offices, potentially three. Okay, prophet, king, and potentially uh, the office of, of priest, if not high priest. Now, thankfully, because of the New Testament, we don't have to guess uh, who this person is. 700 years after the prophecy was given, um, Jesus attributed the text to himself in a very public and specific way. You know the story. He he went back to Nazareth, the town that he grew up in. He's sitting there in the synagogue. The attendant of the synagogue hands him uh, the scroll of Isaiah, and uh, Jesus knows exactly where he wants to turn. Now, it's pretty hard in a scroll when there's no chapter numbers and verse numbers, but Jesus goes right to Isaiah chapter 61 and he reads verse one and then the first statement in verse two, which says to proclaim the year of the Lord, then Jesus rolls up the scroll, he gives it back to the attendant, he sits down, And then everybody in the synagogue is staring at Jesus, okay? And he looks at all of them and he said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He told everyone in the synagogue that he is the anointed one of Isaiah 61. He's the subject of Isaiah's prophecy. Uh, Now everyone isn't just looking at Jesus. They're listening intently. Because if he is the subject of Isaiah 61, he's the subject of every messianic prophecy in all of the Old Testament. If he's the subject of one messianic prophecy, he is the subject of all messianic prophecy. Amen? So then he is the prophet of Deuteronomy 18. He's the priest of Psalm 110 verse 4, and he's the king of Psalm chapter 2. He is the anointed of God. He's not a messiah. He's the messiah. He's the prophet, priest, and king. It's crazy. You remember in uh, Hebrews um, speaking, it's, it's this text where Jesus is speaking and he's quoting himself, as it were, from the book of Psalms and says, Behold, it is I. I have come in the volume of the book. It is all written of me. He's the subject. He's the object of all of scripture. Everything eventually leads to him. If all roads lead to Rome, all of Scripture leads to Christ. Amen. Yeah. This day, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's the subject of all of messianic prophecy. In the passage in front of us, his mission is parsed out in a number of categories. He was anointed to proclaim or preach good tidings. Good tidings is translated into good news. Or when we come to the new covenant, it's the gospel, the uh the we know that Jesus preached kind of two gospels. He preached the gospel of the kingdom, and then he preached the gospel of salvation and forgiveness. Okay. Uh, when Christ came the first time, he, he came to gather subjects for his kingdom. That's what he's doing. He's gathering subjects for his kingdom, which will only <clears throat> include those who are redeemed by his blood okay. for, the, for the forgiveness of sins. And uh, only those will enter his kingdom, only those will rule and reign with him. But he also came, uh, and it's, it's all couched in the same context, but the text says he came to heal the brokenhearted. Uh, of course, nobody's literally brokenhearted or they'd be dead. So, you know, how do we interpret, you know, what is it to be brokenhearted? I think that, you know, all of the brokenheartedness of humanity has to do with the consequences of, of sin in general, right? Because sin has broken our world, and it's, it's introduced into it uh, all pain, physical, emotional, all illness, and all death. So when you know, Adam introduced the curse, and Christ has come to conquer the curse, and he can initially do that through the work of salvation, at least in our hearts, amen, when he redeems and regenerates the soul, And he restores fellowship with God. That's at least the initial work of it. And as Romans chapter 8 says, he will completely finish the work. We're not not fully redeemed at this point. You guys know that, right? Because you still get sick, you still get sad, you still get tired, and we're all going to die. Okay. But all of that will come to an end when we're fully, fully redeemed. Okay. So he came to heal the brokenhearted. It says, liberty to those who are captive... Uh, that's also part of his mission. Um, in a real way, you know, unredeemed man is, is held captive to indwelling sin. Jesus said that everyone who sins is a slave of sin, John eight thirty four, And he goes on later and then to say that if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Romans 6 says that, you know, it's through the gospel that we have been set free from the tyranny of sin. And we're now able to walk as uh, slaves of righteousness as opposed to slaves of sin. It's in John 8, 34. Now here's the tricky one. It says that part of his mission will be to open prison doors. This one is difficult to interpret because of how it's actually translated in the text that Jesus read in Luke chapter 4. And what Jesus is reading from is what's called the Septuagint. It was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament so Isaiah spoke his words in Hebrew, they were written down, they were recorded in Hebrew, and then uh, about 200-150 AD, uh, as, you know, the word Septuagint comes from, 70 scholars got together and they translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek, because okay? so many Jews were being Hellenized, and they were because of Alexander the Great and, and um, the way that Hellenism had spread throughout the world at that time. <clears throat> the Greek translation says, uh, instead of opening prison doors, it says to give recovery of sight to the blind. Very interesting. Okay, now it may be that the translators were actually not so much translating verbatim, but they were interpreting what they thought or knew was a well-known Hebrew figure of speech. Okay, uh, those who are blind are like prisoners in a cell that is completely dark, where they see nothing. And when prisoners that are incarcerated in that form of of, uh, prison, when they're delivered, it's like receiving their sight again. Just like when a blind person is healed, it's like coming out of a dark prison, the prison of blindness. So that's a theory that when they translated the text, they also interpreted the figure of speech. Does that make sense? I don't know that for sure. Uh, but it is an interesting uh, difference between the two. Um, and as far as translations go, um, it's, hard to, it's hard to say this, but it seems like a hatchet job to me and that we should have just stuck to the Hebrew. But the problem is, is that Jesus and the apostles mostly quoted from the Septuagint because that's what, that's what they had. Make sense? Paul, though, uh, could, could freely quote from Hebrew and Uh, the Hebrew text and the the Greek text, Uh, probably because of his training as a Pharisee. So anyway, that's that's my opinion about the Septuagint. Nobody uses it today. Um, I have one, and um, I don't like it. So how's that? All right. Yeah. All right, so again, when Jesus read from the scroll of Isaiah, he didn't just read verse 1. He read the first statement in verse 2. And then he stopped. Now, the Hebrew sentence is cut in half. He only read half of the sentence and then said, what I've just read is fulfilled. So let's keep reading on. So he read this, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, stop. But he didn't say, end the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness that they may be called trees of righteousness, oaks, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So again, he stopped uh, reading mid-sentence there um, where he says to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. I think it's important to point that out, that he read so far, stopped, and said, what I have read has been fulfilled in your hearing. Yeah. When God revealed to the prophets the, the person and mission of Messiah, he typically did not make a distinction between first coming and second coming, even though the information oftentimes is all given together. It's like, here's the mission of Messiah, all of his, all of his mission, just a, a, a broad stroke of it, and making no distinction uh, between the two. Yeah. Now, there are times, of course, when prophecy consists only of events pertaining to the first or the second coming but then there's others like this one there's a whole bunch of them okay so it's not as defined um, but the differences between the two missions are actually so obvious that ancient jewish commentators came up with different theories trying to explain it all because they don't have they don't have hindsight like we do right we can look at all of the the prophecies of messiah all of his mission and we can go oh that was fulfilled first coming first coming first coming wait a second, that wasn't fulfilled. But it's still prophesied, it's still promised. Okay? We have that hindsight. They didn't. They were completely just looking forward. <clears throat> so these theories that they had, some had said that the prophecies of a dying and suffering Messiah was actually a mention, uh, a symbol rather of Israel. So when you look at Isaiah 53, there was some that theorized and said, well, Isaiah's talking about Israel. But when you read the text, it can't be Israel. Okay? You can't render it from the text itself. So not all Jews hold that. Others simply denied the suffering uh, portion of Messiah's mission, and they, they only focused on the victory. Only focused on the victory. This was the prevailing problem of Jesus' day, because see their, their struggles with Roman oppression had blinded them to those passages of a suffering Messiah. Okay? they could not fathom a suffering or a yeah, a suffering Messiah when all they could could imagine and dream of was victory. I mean, who in their suffering has time for a hero who just suffers? Why would you pay any attention to that? That's kind of the, the thought. But some commentators uh, from what is called the Babylonian Talmud, and even some from the writings that we've found at Qumran uh, with the Essene people, they theorize that there were two different messiahs, some of them. So one messiah would come, he would suffer, he would die. And then a second Messiah later would come and reign victoriously, deliver Israel from her enemies, and uh, and you know start everything over again in the mess- messianic era. There are some places that imply one Messiah, two comings, but it's pretty rare. Okay, pretty rare. But isn't that interesting? That uh, the, because the the there's such a distinction in the mission that they would come up with either two, or they would go oh, maybe that's just talking about. Something else or maybe that's us the suffering part because Israel has indeed suffered uh, But they've always suffered because of why because their unbelief and rebellion That's not the reason for suffering in Isaiah 53 says my righteous servant and um, And this is someone who actually bears the sins of God's people in judgment. So it's a it's a it's a different person But God's Messiah uh, In the scriptures one person we know that he's the second person of the Trinity uh, he's the me in verse one, right? Yeah, and uh, this person, uh, we say second person of the Trinity. He's a part of of what we've called in the past Godhead. I'm not. Uh, I'm not. Uh, I don't like that term, um, but he's co-equal in majesty, eternality, infinitude, knowledge, and power. He's equal to the Father in every way, uh, really. But but authority. Okay. The most significant difference between Jesus and the other members of the Trinity is is Jesus' role in redemption, his redemption. Uh, We don't pray to the Father and say, thank you for dying on the cross. The Father didn't die on the cross. Uh, We don't say thank you to the Father or the Spirit for coming in the flesh or for bearing our sins or for rising from the dead. Only Jesus did that. He's the only one that took on human flesh to where we had divine nature and human nature in, in one Uh, person he's the only one that carried our sins our sorrows he's the only one that was that our sin was imputed to and then bore our judgment who died and then rose again he's the only one that ascended he's the only one that will return and reign you understand yeah one messiah who will fulfill all of prophecy so he's already come the first time to make uh, peace with god for us right through the shedding of his own blood. He'll come a second time, as the text here even indicates. There's going to be a time where he proclaims the vengeance of God. Now, not simply to proclaim, but in, the, in verse 1 and the first statement in verse 2, whatever is proclaimed is executed. He came to proclaim uh, the good tidings. Did he just proclaim good tidings? He brought it. When he proclaimed liberty, he liberated Okay. When he comes to proclaim the day of God's vengeance, he will execute the vengeance of God. Okay. He did not say, he didn't read that passage, because if he did, he couldn't have said, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Okay. It's for another time, another time. So he'll come a second time to reign over what belongs to him, what Adam failed to take dominion of. Uh, rather, I would say that he handed over to Satan, who then took dominion of the earth. Okay. When he comes, when he returns, he'll rescue the believing remnant of Israel and he'll rescue them by delivering them from their enemies, by by proclaiming the vengeance of God. That'll bring about, as the text says, the comfort of Zion, okay? Uh, Restoring beauty for ashes, joy for mourning, praise for a spirit of heaviness. He's going to safely and permanently plant them in the land, as it says, for his own glory. I'll do it for my glory. He says, "...and they," speaking of Israel, "...shall rebuild the old ruins, they shall raise up the former desolations, and they sh- shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the foreigner shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers." So in the second coming, okay, it's going to mean the full restoration of Israel's former glory. Now, when we watched, how many of you guys came to the, the video that we showed on Israel, the Covenant City? So, the, the the gentleman that narrates the film, he's convinced that you know all of these prophecies are fulfilled. And I and I had mentioned that it's tempting to to view it that way because Israel is is back in the land, which is a miracle. But they're also, I mean, they have one of the strongest economies on the planet. That agriculturally, they're a a powerhouse economically, technologically, medically. You know there's just so much amazing stuff that has come out of this little country that's the size of Lewis County. I think it's smaller than Lewis County and it's just amazing that, that they're one of the primary exporters of fruit to Europe. Uh, they export flowers to Holland of all places. Um, we, they, they've, just, they've just done so many things. We we're talking about uh, the pill that you can swallow that is a camera. Uh, invented by Israel, you know, so many different things. They've risen uh, to the top. Uh, They have a a crazy, well-fashioned military. And uh, it's just pretty amazing. And so she's going to be, in the end, restored to her former glory. I don't think it's yet. I don't think it's yet. I don't think we've seen anything yet from Israel. And the reason is is because Messiah has not come, uh, redeemed her, and then restored her. His presence, His reign will bring about this, this glory that it's talking about here. At this point, we don't see anything in this passage being fulfilled, as we'll see later in the text. But as the text will go on to say, the whole world is going to marvel at the recovery of Israel. That's just not happening. Yeah. It says that the ruins will be restored. At that time, foreigners, Gentiles will shepherd their flocks. They'll work their fields. They'll tend their vineyards, okay? And those who formerly oppressed them essentially are going to serve them. He says, but you shall be named the priests of the Lord. Is that happening? No, Israel is is an ethnic group that is in rebellion against God, uh, the, the vast majority. And right now we know that most Jews are not religious at all. Most of them are Zionists, meaning they love Jerusalem, but they're not religious they're not religious. A very small minority is uh, religious. But they will be restored. They will be restored. They shall call you the servants of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and excuse me, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, you shall have double honor, and instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land they shall possess double. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. So they're going to be restored spiritually. That is, they're going to go from rebellion to being known as the priests and the servants of the Lord. And then as in the Davidic era, Israel is going to rise to a position above the nations. Above the nations. Okay. They will prosper beyond measure. For I, the Lord, love justice. I I hate robbery for burnt offering. That is, Uh, the idea of somebody stealing an animal and then using it for a burnt offering, which is a, a dedication offering. It's very strange. Yeah. I will direct their work in truth. So the implication is, in times past, that was happening. Okay, So God has to be the one to direct their work in truth and will make with them an everlasting covenant. Their descendants shall be known among the Gentiles and their offspring among the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are the posterity whom the Lord has blessed. All, everybody, okay? So first of all, because God loves justice, he hates injustice and falsehood, he, he cannot restore Israel to her former glory until they've repented, until they've you know, trusted in Messiah. Uh, and this, this, that whole thing is gonna come through this everlasting covenant, okay, by them embracing it through faith. What is the everlasting covenant? It's the new covenant. It's promised in Jeremiah 31. It's promised in Ezekiel 36. It's promised here as well. He will, this covenant will be made with Israel. Okay? The everlasting covenant is discussed in Hebrews, uh, which is a very Jewish text. It's mentioned again in Revelation. But the problem is, um, Israel, we know, they're not seeking after God. In fact, Paul says in Romans 3 that there's none who seek after God because man in his rebellious nature... He doesn't voluntarily look for God. so God has to initiate something. Okay, now the theologians debate all this. Um, he initiates, he draws uh, some theologians call it prevenial grace. I totally believe in prevenial grace, um, but God will have to first go to them. He, he will have to draw them, he'll have to remove the blindness that he's caused, Romans chapter 11, and he'll have to draw them to himself and. At a certain period of time in history, they will come to faith. He will direct their path until they come to faith. And when he does, at that time, Israel will be recognized by the world, the Gentile world, as the posterity, that's the seed, the people whom God has blessed. The world will see it. They'll recognize the miracle of it. It'll be obvious. they will be in wonder over what Messiah does with Israel. I like this. They're going to be like Paul the Apostle, a Jew hating, or not a Jew, a, a, a Jesus hating Pharisee, to someone who is so sold out for Jesus that they can't wait to die and be with him. The Jews will become like that. They're a Jesus hating nation, and they'll be turned around just as Paul says in Romans chapter 11. They'll be devoted to him, and it'll be amazing. It says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bride decks himself with a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So the question here is, who's talking now? Uh, is it Messiah from verse one, or is it the sort of the anticipation of the response of the Jews after God has done all of this through Messiah? You understand? Like this is, it's saying here, some scholars say this is what the Jews will be saying once he redeems them, okay? And then others say, well, I think maybe it's Messiah speaking from uh, verse one. Okay, I don't, I don't know for sure, okay? I think it could be said of, of both. For as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth, before all the nations. So, again, this could be uh, the people uh, speaking at that time, the anticipation of what they will say, or it could be Messiah talking about himself, what God has done by him, through him, and to him at that time. Um, I don't know for sure. Um, as I said, I think we can say it of both. Um, the Lord is going to restore uh, Israel to a nation of worshipers. Okay? And in the sight of all nations, God's going to elevate them as a nation of righteousness and praise. Okay? Um, and Israel, of course, is the place from which righteousness will be on display. Now, but I think it's not just the people, it's their Messiah. It'll be both. Okay? Everybody will look to Israel, they'll see what he's done with the land, they'll see what he's done with the people, but he will be there among them. And so there will be this, just, it'll be everything, okay? And uh, we know also that um, Messiah's dominion will cover the earth. And it, as it here is talking about righteousness as other thing and other things, the nature of his dominion is going to be righteousness. Um, <clears throat> so something interesting in Psalm 72, Solomon actually recorded a psalm of his father. So David wasn't the one that published it as it were, but Solomon published it for him later. Okay, And... Um, The psalm is probably written by David uh, in response to the promise of God to David in 2 Samuel 7 about one of his sons reigning on the throne of empire forever. It's very interesting. The psalm depicts the character of both the king and his reign. He's a righteous king, and his righteous dominion brings forth righteousness and justice throughout the earth. It says, from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth, from the river to the ends of the earth. All the kings of the earth will come and they will worship him there and the whole earth because of this will be filled with his glory. So the Psalms from Psalm 2 to the end of the prophets, there's this eager anticipation of the coming and the dominion of this king for who he is and what he will accomplish. And then in the same spirit of anticipation, the apostle Paul said, you guys know this, Maranatha, Maranatha. We say Maranatha, it's two words in Aramaic, okay? Meaning, our Lord come. The anticipation of the prophets, Isaiah 61. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 16, 22. And then John the apostle, to whom was revealed, you know, the judgment of the tribulation, he said, even so, that means, even if this all has to happen, come, Lord Jesus, Revelation twenty-two ten, And there is the exhortation for the bride of Christ, but it's in conjunction with the Holy Spirit to say the same, come Lord Jesus. So in conjunction with the Holy Spirit's prompting exhortation, the bride of Christ says, come Lord Jesus, Revelation 22, verse 17. The redeemed of the Lord should say it. They should say it. And they should be living in anticipation for it, preparing by their lives for it, by walking in the precepts of the Lord, being faithful to his commission, praying for the lost, as we know from 1 Timothy 2, that is the will of the Lord for us. This world is going to come to nothing. John says even the desire for the best things in it are going to come to absolutely nothing. There's a lot of good things in this world, but the desire for the best things in it will go with the world. And the only thing that will matter at that moment is where someone stands with the Messiah of prophecy, right? Now, if you've been at Calvary Chapel for very long, you know that I don't have much of an imagination. I do not. I'm not creative at all. But I can't imagine the Lord tarrying much longer. I just can't imagine it. And and to be honest, I certainly hope that he doesn't tarry. I just don't want him to. You know, I want him to have complete dominion over me, and the world that he created for us. I want him to bring an end to all my sin and the evil that's in the world. I want to see him face to face. I think it was uh, Webster uh, of the dictionary when he was interviewed, he he said, there's nothing going to be compared to seeing God. Uh, Just to see him face to face, to finally worship him as he deserves, you know, without my flesh contaminating my thoughts, my feelings, or whatever, um, I want uh, absolutely all of the redemption that's promised in Romans chapter 8. Every bit of it. The world around me. Um, I can't wait to see all of you in a glorified state. Um, whatever you'll look like. Um, I suppose I'll recognize you just as um, Peter, James, and John recognized uh, Moses and Elijah, the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, how all of that works. you know. He says that we'll be known, uh, we'll know even as we're known. Okay, whatever that means. Uh, apparently we're going to know something. But uh, just to be in that state that the Lord has willed from all eternity, the ultimate uh, thing that he wants for his world, for us, and uh, for his glory. And so I just love reading the prophets and what they anticipate. Uh, I know that the stuff in the text is pertaining to Israel, but in so many ways, we're going to merge with them at that time and reap so many of the benefits that come with that. Uh, But still, uh, the promises to the church, I still think, outweigh so much what was promised to them. So, amen? Even so, come Lord Jesus. Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. Well, Father... um, in light of all that Israel is enduring right now, um, we pray that you would use all of this, Lord, to turn their eyes to you. And and that seems to be implied in a number of, of prophecies, especially in Ezekiel, that you'll use the worst of circumstances to bring Israel to faith in you. And Lord, we know that so much of uh, the consummation of all things hinges on Israel coming to faith. And so, Lord, we we look forward to that and we want to participate, as Paul said in Romans 11, that we're to provoke the Jew to jealousy. Their God has lavished his grace upon the Gentile and they've been excluded until they repent and come to faith. So Lord, help us to be interested in the salvation of the Jew. And, um, and Lord, also, as uh, all, all things will uh, consummate at the same time, uh, all prophecy, all promises to Israel, all promises to the church, it's all going to be wrapped up at the same time. And so, Lord, we, we pray that Lord, as we know that these things will come to pass, Lord, that you'd humble us and you'd, you'd help us to think on things above, on things to come. And um, we would walk in step with you. And, Lord, as you've, you've let us remain here, because we're a part of the rescue mission, that we might snatch as many from the fire as we can. So help us to be faithful on all fronts, Lord, until You you come for us. So we thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you guys.